fun. I was, I was surprised, Jesus. I was, I was know what we have in him. Oh, as always, Father, we pray. I sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. I'm so happy I know Jesus. Um, I was given a topic. <laughs> this is going to be a hot mess. Uh, I was given a topic. So this is a topical message. This is not a classic exposition. I, I'm going to try to use a lot of the Bible because that's how we understand topics rightly. Uh, the topic I was given is to think about and our gatherings how on one hand the tension uh, and the desire to edify the people of God while at the same time evangelizing those who are not the people of God. And it's a tension, kind of. So I was like, man, where do we go to in the Bible that answers that question? So I have a bunch of verses. I want to start with one. If you have a Bible, please go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The title of my, my message, if you care about that, this is the only thing you note takers are getting from me. I have no points. <laughs> Sorry. And honestly, I, so I, don't, I don't use points, so the way I, I preach is the way I like to be preached to. I, I would just, just vibe with me. Just vibe with me. If you need a translation. <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 begins this way. Therefore, having the ministry by the mercy of God, this ministry, he says, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced. Did I tell you all the title? I didn't tell you to tell. I'm sorry. <laughs> Tears is all up in my eye. I don't know what's happening. The title of my message is Christ and Him Crucified. Christ and Him Crucified. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's consciences in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. My question is, what makes Paul speak that way? 
What kind of conviction must he have to say that? These are things we should all say, yes? So we should all have a similar conviction to free us to say these things. And my conclusion is that Paul was sold. He was resolved. He was convinced of the centrality of proclaiming Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified. So when I was asked to engage this tension between our worship gatherings being aimed at the edification of the people of God and the evangelizing of the lost, I would simply say we want to proclaim Christ and him crucified. That is, let the substance of all that we do when we gather be the person and the work of Christ. It seems most would say that. My concern, which I, which I think is Paul's concern, is that most would mean that. Worship for the Christian is an exclusive stage for Jesus. Our service is a consecrated gathering to focus on his person and his work. It should exclude all boasting in self while reserving and ascribing all glory to Christ. And I want to talk about that. But before we consider what should dominate us when we come together, I thought it might be helpful to consider what dominates a Christian. What dominates a Christian after all churches are defined gatherings of Christians. Oftentimes when people are confused about what we should do when we come together, sometimes it's because they're confused on what they should be doing by themselves. So before we talk about what we do, the first question is, what do I do? What is the basis for every Christian's entire worship? Is it not the person and work of Christ? Familiar passage, I'm sure, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 through 15, Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. Because, why is a Christian controlled by the love of Christ? He says, because we have come to a conclusion. We have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The Christian has come to know the person and work of Christ, and that news has changed them. It's so changed them. It controls them. They no longer live for themselves. We no longer live for ourselves, but for him. Note in his reasoning the centrality of the person and work of Christ. He says, my conclusion is based on my engagement with the fact that one has died for all. Galatians 2.20, another uh, popular passage. We could probably, probably quote this by memory. He says what? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Coming face to face with the person and work of Christ in faith is so overwhelmingly dramatic, you die. You no longer live. It's a wrap for you. And we say, hallelujah. But Christ, he says, he so controls and dominates all of you, filling you with his word and his spirit. He is so what you're about that it's true to say, it's him who lives in me. You're no longer about your glory, but his and his alone. Note in his reasoning the centrality of the person and work of Christ. He loved me and gave himself for me. And then there's the biblical shorthand for all of that, I think. Philippians 1.21. For me, to live is Christ. Underline the is, even as you circle the Christ. For me to live is Christ. Who sings, oh, I need you? Oh, how I need, every hour I need you. Only someone who, for them to live is Christ. Perhaps you've heard of the person who, in thinking about heaven and the ceaseless celebration of Jesus that will happen, they, they say something to effect of, Psh, well, I think that'll get boring after a certain point in time. And in their mind, maybe after 100 years, or they just say something crazy. I'm sure you've had a conversation similar. And all that statement does is expose an eternal ignorance. Because not only do they not understand heaven, they don't understand Jesus. If you don't understand Jesus, you don't understand Christianity. How glorying in the person and work of Christ is to be the never-ending theme of every Christian's life now. It doesn't change. We don't get more information later. But we have enough to make us rejoice forever. We'll always be singing, hallelujah, I got Jesus. That's what they're saying in glory, basically. Heaven will be the gathered, perfected, louder, holier, glorified setting for endless, unhindered worship and enjoyment of God. A perfected people in the perfect environment to endlessly enjoy our perfect Lord. And the Christian is doing that now. Jesus doesn't become our all then, he is our all now. Colossians 3, 3 through 4, for you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, you will appear with him in glory. What's your great treasure? Do you feel it? Not just when you sing it, but do you feel it? As you, as you take inventory of your soul, do you own? Jesus is my everything. 
His steadfast love is better than life itself. That he's our portion and the strength of our heart forever. Everything else can fail, but we have him. And when God saves someone, when he helps them see Jesus, he makes them all about Jesus. That's what it means to be remade. We're not tweaked. We're resurrected. Dramatically changed. So much so you're a different creature. And we're given these appetites that hunger and thirst for Christ. We were given open eyes to see the glory in Christ and him crucified. Jesus is our treasure. Uh, John Newton, love the brother, uh, wrote one of my favorite hymns, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes our sorrows, heals our wounds, and drives away our fears. It makes the wounded spirit whole, and it calms the troubled breast. It's manna to the hungry soul, and it's to the weary rest. Oh, Jesus, shepherd, guardian, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, except the praise I bring. This is not the special sentiment of a special Christian, right? This is Christian. This is Christian. And if you're here today and you don't consider yourself to be a Christian, or perhaps as We're talking about Jesus and singing about Jesus and and the deep part of your heart. His name isn't sweet to you like that. You can fool us. You can't fool him. But he wants your heart to rejoice in Christ as well. Which is why the cross is important. So if you're you're not a Christian, please Look at the cross for a second. Or if you're confused about who Jesus is to you, look to the cross for a second and tell me what you see. Jesus, in and of himself, to a Christian, before they were a Christian, was not sweet. It's Christ plus cross that makes Christ sweet to us. Cross is included in the phrase Christ. But if you take away cross, what we got? The cross not only says something terrifyingly clear about God, it says something terrifyingly clear about us. It's only when you're gripped with the disturbing reality of your own sin or the great reality of God's holiness. It's only when we own the deservedness of hell, the terror of God's judgment to consider, as Psalm 90 would say, the the power of God's anger and wrath and the fear of him. It's only when we can sense how stranded we are in eternal hopelessness apart from Christ 
That's when the cross becomes a treasure chest of joy. When the sweetness of Jesus is felt. We were slaves to the devil. Slaves to sin. Destined. That means heading on a trajectory you can't change. Destined for wrath. Enemies of God. Hostile to him at war with him. Utterly dead in our trespasses and our sins. The the life we naturally live when we were living for ourselves is a dead, perishing existence. And it will land us before a holy judge with absolutely no good answer for our sin. And absolutely no defense for how we have fallen short of God's glory. When God weighs us by his goodness and judges us by his standard of right, his righteousness, we are all found guilty. Guilty of eternal sin, bringing eternal consequence, eternal death. We're guilty because we suggest that God wasted existence by making it about Jesus. We're guilty of trying to erase our creator. We're guilty of deeming the death of the Son of God as worthless. For someone to look at the cross and pass on it. They don't believe it, but you're telling God he wasted his son's life. And the Bible says there will literally be an eternal hell to pay for it. That's not for them, it's us. We deserve that. I deserved that. It's right. It's good. It's just. The appropriate just wage for our rebellion against God and our spurning his son is surely death. John Piper, in what I think is probably one of the best things he's ever said, he says, God did not ordain the cross of Christ, or create the lake of fire in order to communicate the insignificance of belittling his glory. The death of the Son of God and the damnation of unrepentant human beings are the loudest shouts conceivable under heaven that God is infinitely holy, sin is infinitely offensive, wrath is infinitely just, and grace is infinitely precious. Without the cross, God is a judge to us. That's bad news. Without the cross, we're without him. Bible says without hope. Without the cross, we are dead. Now heading only to die after death. Bad news. But there is a cross. There is a cross 
God considered all that bad news for you, for me, and acted to change it. It's at the cross we see the glory of Christ. When we talk about the glory of Christ, we must talk about the cross. It is Christ and him crucified. You can't separate him. We can't see him without the cross. And at the cross, what do we see? We see in love. Jesus died for our sin. In love, he took our guilty verdict upon himself. In love, he took our penalty on himself. The judge went in place of the criminal. In love, he took the wrath of God that we deserve and he took it on himself. In love, the the, the judge of all the earth became a curse. Him who knew no sin became sin. Explain that one. But it was in love. That a pure, righteous, loving God would so identify with you, so show that he's for you, that he would take his, all of your shame on himself. Jesus looked shameful. He was punished for real shame. The darling of heaven, clothed in our sin. We went from overwhelmingly broke to infinitely rich. We went from no joy at all to the promise of fullness of joy forever. The fleeting pleasures of sin to pleasures forevermore. And it's all because of the cross. It's because of Jesus that we are no longer Anybody who trusts in Jesus, you're no longer destined for wrath. Now, if you don't feel like you are owed wrath, that doesn't do anything for you. So I'm like, man, your cancer's going. You're like, I didn't know I had cancer. That's not going to do anything for you. But when you're sick and they come with a cure... When, they're, when you're wounded and someone comes with healing, I don't know if you ever had like one of those super bad headaches. I'm talking about migraine on the next level where you might for a second have actually been like, if he takes me now, I'd be okay with it. <laughs> and you remember when it's like when you, you might try to go to sleep a couple times, you can't go, but you remember when it's like when you wake up and the pain's gone? You're like, whoo! What's that? We're talking about an eternal hell you deserved. That's gone now. You'll never taste it. Thank you, Lord, indeed. This is why Christ is sweet to us. If indeed he's sweet. This is, we've tasted and seen he's good. That's why there's no sweeter sound to our souls than to hear of our Jesus. Because it's there that we get how much we're loved by God. 
You're loved by God, and there's no way you could know it. There's no way you can know how much without the cross. This is true for all Christians individually. The reason I wanted to start here is to say that the object of our worship, the focus of our adoration, what builds us up the most, it doesn't change when we get together. The believer never gets beyond the cross, and neither does the church. Not only do we not get beyond it, we don't want to go beyond it. When people go beyond it, that's when you start getting Galatian-like letters. (laughs) And nobody wants one of those. (laughs) Because what happened? The Galatians started thinking Christ was not enough for them. God forbid. The church that is not always concerned with the careful and consistent proclamation of Christ, his cross and his exaltation, is in fact fighting God for glory. And we must take care not to have worship services that fight with God for glory. A worship service that fights with God for glory is an oxymoron. Christ and him crucified. That's God's way of securing our focus and reserving his glory alone. Christ and him crucified. It is what's most edifying to the church. It's what's most glorifying to God is when the centrality of Christ and him crucified is proclaimed. Uh, whatever, whatever needs you have, it's all found in Jesus. It's all found in Jesus. What you need, he the one-stop shop. <laughs> you know, where I'm from, we have corner stores. and at corner stores, you can get, like, groceries, you get clothes. <laughs> they were never good clothes, but, you know, you can always get them. It was so you didn't have to go nowhere else. It was convenient. This is not out of convenience. This is just sheer out of glory. He's a one-stop shop for everything dope. Everything dope. No generic stuff in the store. All paid for already. You don't even know how to think about that. What do we need? Wisdom. We need righteousness, stuff for your sanctification, stuff necessary for redemption. Where are you going to go? Yeah, y'all know. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 through 31. And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. I don't need wisdom outside of Jesus. He is the wisdom from God. Righteousness. Paul, come on, Philippians 3, y'all. What do you say? The surpassing worthiness of knowing Christ and being found in him and having a righteousness that isn't mine, but his. You need righteousness? Go to Jesus. Sanctification. What's going to grow us up? 
Don't look away from Christ and him crucified. Jesus is that too. He's our sanctification, our redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The Corinthian church was tripping. They were pretending others were better than others. And Paul's like, that ain't how y'all heard about Jesus. We preach Jesus as the only important one. Whatever you think you need, it's in him. And saints, that's our burden as churches. We, you ain't got to care what I say. I ain't got nothing for you. But Jesus, you cannot out-need him. He has all of your needs met. We don't leave Christ to get what we need. He's where we go. And this is why Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Is that your burden? Is that your phrase? Is that your MO? Paul's like, y'all, y'all get no encouragement to be divided from me. I, I didn't preach anything or any kind of way that would encourage you to trust in man or in your own ability or your own wisdom. All we talked about, all I knew among y'all was Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I would recommend that as a paradigm. I want that on my tombstone. When I die, I would love for it to say, he, he chose to know nothing among nobody but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's a lovely epithet for a church. Here, they don't know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because saying, if that's all you know, you got all you need. There, the way to edify the church in our gatherings is by proclaiming Christ and him crucified. It's to draw attention to the cross. It's to keep people's eyes fixed there. Because why? Because day after day, our eyes go to other stuff. You don't need to encourage nobody when they come to church to look down on the things of earth. No, we need to encourage them to look up. If you've been raised with Christ, set your mind up there. It is Christ and the cross that God holds forward as the great sign of his inseparable love for you. I have three children. My oldest is six, second oldest is four, my daughter's two. One of my favorite sounds on the planet is hearing my children say they love me. I love it. Never get tired of it. Well, Spurgeon runs by, I love it. I know, I know, you love me. Bounce. <laughs> love you too, bro. I love when my wife looks into my eyes and says, baby, I love you. Among the sweetest sounds I know. I don't stop like, shh. But churches do that with God. Nobody, nobody has, 
Nobody remembers with the accuracy we need that we're loved. We don't come to church killing it. And at the cross is where God is telling us, I love you. And I'm like, tell me again. And again. And again. And again. Because there's a bunch of lies that pop up every week. There's a lot of devils. And there's the devil who throws fiery darts at saints. And you know what they sound like? God doesn't love you. After what you did. Why do you think this is happening to you? And the cross shuts that mess down. Romans 8, 32. Christ and him crucified. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He knew you was wicked when he died for you. Romans 5 comes before Romans 8. Amen? I'm just doing simple counting. For the love of God was shown that while you were still weak, while we were still ungodly, wretched folk, that's when Christ died for you. You know why? Say, there'll never be another point in your life where you can say, I'm disqualified from his love. He'll give you all things. He's giving you Jesus. You have no needs greater than what he's provided for. What things? Well, context, Romans 8, all things we need. Sure, but what kind of things specifically? Justification is in view here. Sanctification in view here. Glorification in view here. Confidence of working. All things together for your good. So if you're in a situation that you hate and you're trying to process that, now how does this jive with God's love for me? Because I thought if he loved me, he'd do something different. The cross shuts you up from saying that. He loves you that much. What are you talking about with this? It must be that this is factored into cross. That he's working for your good. It must be. How I know? Because the cross... What greater sign could God give to the churches throughout the ages other than his son for them? He gives complete freedom from condemnation and affliction conquering hope that God loves us. If you were to ask Paul, what would be the best diet for the church's growth? It being built up, it being matured. 
I wonder what he'd say. It just so happens we have what he'd say. And he would say, proclaim Christ. Colossians 1, 28, him we proclaim, admonishing everybody, teaching everybody with all wisdom, so that why? We might mature or present everybody mature in Christ. If you want to grow the church, you preach Christ. If you want your church to be edified, you sing about Jesus. You want to see disciples mature? Christ and him crucified. You need nothing else. And in there is the world. It's the ecosystem of God's edification to the church. Christ is the all-sufficient source of all that we'll ever need. Everybody comes to church with varying degrees of awareness about what is theirs in Christ. And we're to remind them, we're to encourage them, we're to teach them, we're to charge them, we're to rebuke them, we're to admonish them, to never leave the cross. Because with Jesus, everybody's full. A saint might come in and just feel just straight up discouraged, and they never have a reason to be. That's what's crazy. There's always a, there's always a, we don't lose heart. Who's the we? Christians don't lose heart. Why do we not lose heart? We do lose heart, but when we lose heart, it's because we're, we're out of focus. We're looking at stuff here. We're looking at temporary stuff, right? Which is why he said, mm-mm. Now, when you look beyond that to the eternal stuff, you have confidence the stuff you're seeing is actually a servant of yours. It's, it's not working against you. It's working for you. There's eternal stuff happening. In Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And what? You are filled in him. No Christian is empty. Impossible if you're in Christ. God is in Christ. Your tank is always full, even if the joint's lying. That's what we do. We're the mechanic. Oh, no, your tank's actually full. You ever, you ever, you know, some people got a little broke. I don't know what the gas thing is called. And they always, <laughs> I don't know if you ever had a hoopty or knew someone who had a hoopty, and that joint was always broke. So they had to like go to the gas station just and guess when they had to fill up. And some say, oh, man, it was actually full. I thought it was empty. That's what Christians do. They come to church and they think they're empty. They're not. They're full. We just reset it. Oh, no, no, you're looking at the wrong thing. If you, you're not looking at the cross. That's the problem. Just look at the cross. Bing! <laughs> God is fully with them and for them whether they in the plush pastures or in the valley of the shadow of death. How do we know the cross? Yeah. 
At the cross is comfort, mercy, peace. And these are all of a degree and variety that the world doesn't know. Forgiveness. Our adoption stems from the cross. An eternal perspective, a confidence that glory is in your soul, anticipated and rightfully so, a guarantee that you are God's and will be with God forever. It's all at the cross. And this is how this works. What do you say to someone when they come to service and their life is horrible as far as they can see? We're talking about rugged pain, rugged hardship. What do you say to them when they're feeling crushed and abandoned by God? What can you offer them? You can offer them what they need, which is not Dr. Phil, it's not Oprah. You take them to the cross, you say, that's an impossibility, Christian. God is not crushing you. God has not abandoned you. You know how you know that? He crushed his son for you so that you would be confident he'd never crush you. His son was forsaken for you so that you could be confident he'll never leave you or forsake you. This isn't just for the people who come to our churches. This is for us. God beckons us to the cross. Christ and him crucified. It's all the proof a sinner needs to be entirely confident for the rest of forever that God loves them. Uh, Pastor Ian McConnell was actually sharing this in his devotion earlier. There's, There's a really cool... Reality expressed in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's in seeing the glory of Christ that the church changes. Now the question is, is that your conviction? As a member, as a pastor, as a singer, is it your conviction that the way we change is by beholding glory? Because the next question was asked was, where can you behold Christ's glory? 2 Corinthians 3, right? We all, we all, there's a community in view, the community of believers. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. He says, and this is from the Lord who is a spirit. God's spirit uses the gospel of God to reveal the glory of Christ. There's not another way to see Christ's glory other than looking through the cross. Which is why in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I don't know if you've ever connected chapter 3.18 to what Paul then goes on to say. It's that reality that makes him say, now having this ministry, we don't lose heart, but we've renounced Disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And verse 3 says, and even if our gospel is veiled, 
Okay, so when people see the glory of Christ, they change. They're transformed to be like him. And Paul says, therefore, since that's true, our gospel goes out. And we don't play with the gospel. We don't adjust it. We don't try to tweak it. We don't sugarcoat it. We don't clip edges off of it. No, we present gospel. Because that's how people see the glory of Christ and are changed. Now, what of the people in the church that don't know Jesus? This is people that you might spend time with, people that actually come to your gatherings. What for them? You probably know what I'm going to say already. <laughs> when the glory of Christ is magnified, saints are edified and sinners are called to repentance. And we should know that they're both there. Just because someone calls themselves a Christian doesn't mean they are. There's a category of being self-deceived, so we shouldn't assume, oh, they got the Jesus thing already. No, they don't got the Jesus thing already. None of us got the Jesus thing already. We don't always know. But the good thing is you don't got to figure it out. You preach Christ and him crucified. This is what we saw in Isaiah 6, right? What happens when the glory of God is displayed? It fuels awesome, powerful worship, and it brings sinners to repentance. Isaiah got a vision of God's glory on the throne in the gospel. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. J.C. Rowe says, give them Christ and him crucified. No truth so exactly suits the needs of all children of Adam of every color, climate, and language as the truth about Christ crucified. There's different responses to the gospel by unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing. To those who are being saved, it's the power of God. People in our churches don't know that they need to see Christ in him crucified. That doesn't mean that we hide him. That means we show it to them anyways. Paul said, yo, Jews come, they're looking for one thing, right? Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. We give them Jesus. We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to some. It's a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called? You got people in your church that just need to see Jesus. Show him off on the cross. Because to those who are called, they will see power. And wisdom, and it will come alive. Some will hear it and reject it. Some will stumble on it. Where the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, right? It's a, it's a fragrance of life to some, and it will be a stench of death to others. Some people will think your church smells horribly. It will offend them. The stench. Some will be helped. Others will be hardened. But increases from the Lord. Preach Christ and him crucified. Charles Spurgeon, which in my limited time on earth, he's probably my favorite pastor evangelist. Don't know if there's anyone who 
had the shepherd's heart more right and the heart of the evangelist more obvious. I wonder if Spurgeon was here what he would say. So Spurgeon, this is him addressing lost people during service. That's just one question. Do you guys address lost people? It's a great thing to do. They're there. Disturb them. We all must be disturbed before we're comforted. Don't let them just sit there. Address them. Spurgeon said, you, dear friends, are deriving from every, and this is what we're listening for. Are these our convictions? I think they should be. I think they should be. He said, you, dear friends, are deriving from every gospel sermon that you hear, either life unto life or else death unto death. If you get no good from it, you will assuredly get harm. An unbelieving hearing of the gospel is a multiplication of curses to your soul. Another sermon for which you have to give an account. Another rejected exhortation recorded against you. Another earnest invitation which you have refused and for which you will be held responsible. You are heaping up to yourself wrath against the day of wrath even while you hear the word of the Lord. I am not now talking about what will happen to you when you die or when you rise for the final judgment. I am speaking about what is happening now. The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. Oh, may people who hate Jesus or are actively rebelling against him hate our services. Jesus said if they hate him, they're going to hate you. Sometimes the concern, and it's a good concern, that the lost are engaged and that they're welcome, they should be offended if they hate Jesus. How depressing it would be for me as a preacher of the gospel to have an unbeliever come up to me and say they liked the sermon. What an indictment it would be for someone to be actively rebelling against Jesus and be comfortable in our churches. The cross speaks a bad assessment of everybody. And our job is to let them know that. I see you coming here regularly. I'm talking to you because hell is real and there's a way out. And I want you free. Spurgeon would say, the question is, is there enough of Christ in our services to save them? <laughs> what does he mean? <laughs> Land in the plane. Spurgeon says, I believe that those sermons which are fullest of Christ, I think sermons we can apply to services. I believe that those sermons which are fullest of Christ are the most likely to be blessed to the conversion of the hearers. Let your sermons be full of Christ from beginning to end, crammed full of the gospel. As for myself, brethren, I cannot preach anything else but Christ and his cross, for I know nothing else. And long ago, like the apostle Paul, I determined not to know anything else save Jesus Christ and him crucified. People have often asked me, what is the secret to your success? I answer that I have no other secret but this. I have preached the gospel. Not about the gospel, but the gospel. 
the full, free, glorious gospel of the living Christ who is the incarnation of the good news. Preach Jesus Christ, brethren, always and everywhere and every time you preach, be sure to have much of Jesus Christ in the sermons. We can't overdo the Jesus thing. The song should not be the most packed with gospel truth. The service is for the display of Christ and him crucified. The saints and unbelievers need the same cross. A hydrated person and a dehydrated person both need the same thing. One just knows the secret to staying alive. And it's not that they drank water then. They continue to hydrate themselves because they know if they don't, they too will die. Jesus is the water. Pour it out. Is Jesus the substance of our sermons? We take the Lord's Supper, don't fly through it. There's a proclamation happening. We proclaim his death, but when we're sloppy with it, it's unclear. Saints, this is for you. If you're here today and you reject our Christ, you do not have a share in this table. But that can change today. Don't let them get away with just going by, oh, it's okay, just you guys know we're going to play some music, and you know we're going to take this, and look, if you guys love Jesus, you know what to do, everybody else, you know. No, proclaim him. <laughs> we're proclaiming his death. Pastors here who are preaching, we know what Spurgeon says about sermons without the gospel. Spurgeon said, go home until you have something to say. <laughs> That's a quote. Jesus did it. He said, it doesn't matter where you're at in the Bible. Christ in him crucified. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Show them how. Don't just shoo gospel in at the end. Fill it with gospel. That means we must know our Bibles. On the road to Emmaus, the men were confused, not about Christ, but how do they reconcile Christ with the cross? So Luke 24, Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It doesn't matter where you're at in the Bible. It's about Jesus. And it's not about Jesus without a cross. It's Christ and him crucified. It makes the Bible make sense. When Christ is lifted up, Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from there, I will draw them into myself. And we get to echo that moment every Sunday or every time we're at a bus stop and we're sharing the gospel with someone. The question on the floor, what is the ballast of our conviction? What do people need most? What deserves everyone's attention from the second they walk in the door to the second they leave? What should dominate the Christian as they wake up in the morning, as they go to bed? And I appeal to you, brothers, like our brother Paul, Christ and him crucified. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. that you help us to love him more deeply. Help us to proclaim him more faithfully. And Father, would you bless the lifting up of Christ in our churches. It's in Christ's name and for his sake we pray. Amen.